Acts 2. This is, of course, on the day of, of Pentecost. This chapter takes place after Christ ascended and he sent the Spirit and the apostles began speaking in tongues and many people heard them in their own tongue. And then Peter preaches a sermon and that's where we will pick up. So Acts 2 verse 14 and we'll read through verse 47. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this, referring to the the speaking in tongues, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him an sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, This Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 33, stanzas 1 and 6. Every Sunday in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith, and we study the basics and the essentials of the Christian faith. This afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's on page 535 of your books of praise. And the question concerns the church. So the question there is, what do you believe concerning the holy Catholic Christian church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his, word, by his spirit and word, in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the question before us is, what is the Christian church? Why does it exist? What is it here for? Is it even necessary? These are some of the questions that the Catechism has us thinking about as we look at this line in the Apostles' Creed. The Creed itself is fairly simple. It just says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Christian Church. And there are a number of words to be explained there, what they mean. But for the most part, the church is simply asserted. It's just, it's there. But if you were to ask the average Christian or self-described Christian here in Canada, what is the church? Why does it exist? 
what is it for, you would get dozens of different answers. Many people believe that the church is essentially just just a Christian support group. And there's certainly some truth in that definition, but I'm going to argue from Scripture that the church is much more than just a support group. And it makes a difference to, to understand that. Others would see the church as, as an outreach point. Uh, they would say the church exists for the sake of evangelism. The church exists to bring others who don't know Jesus to a point where, where they do. And there's certainly some truth in that as well. But the church is more than that. And again, it makes a difference to understand that. Others still would say, well, the church exists to be a blessing to the world, to to minister to our communities. And again, there's truth in that. And there's more to it than that. Finally, still others might say that Really, the church is just a a religious institution. People talk about organized religion that that somehow managed to get added on to Christianity but was never really essential to it. Many Christians disparage this idea of of organized religion that has somehow imposed itself upon, upon the essence of true Christianity. And so more self-described Christians would choose not to go to church more than once or twice a year than those who do. Here in Alora too, there's no shortage of, of me and Jesus type Christians. Is that really a thing, biblically? Is that one way to, to be a Christian? Is the church optional, or is, is it just an accretion to, to real Christianity? Finally, there's one more difficult question. As you know, Alora is densely populated with Christian churches. There's just about one of every kind. How do we know which are true churches and which are not? And that's not just an ivory, t- ivory tower question for theologians. It's a very practical question. If you have a, a friend or a coworker who becomes a Christian and they ask you, where can I find a good church? Where will you send them? Or if you have a friend from another church who, that isn't part of our federation or any of our, our sister churches, and, and maybe it even has some questionable characteristics, should you encourage them to, to change churches? Or if you yourself move to a new part of the country, what church will you join? The way that we answer those questions depends on what we believe that the church is. So it's very much worth studying God's word on, on this topic and, and digging in to do our best to discern these things. To do that, I, I chose to focus on Acts 2 because it's here in Acts 2 that we see the beginning of the Christian church. And there's a lot of different things that we could pick up and, and put on display from, from Acts 2. We can't possibly deal with every detail But we're just going to notice two things that stand out and then dwell on their implications for the church today. In Acts 2, the apostles were waiting in in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit came and descended on each of the apostles, and they suddenly broke out and began proclaiming the gospel in all of these different uh, real foreign languages. They weren't the the tongues of angels, as some people speak of. People were there from, from different parts of the world and said, we hear them speaking in our own language. So they were speaking these, these foreign languages, and these Jews from all over the world were there. They were there 
for, for the Feast of Pentecost. And they heard these apostles speaking in, in their own language. And, and then some of them, the Pharisees, accused the, the apostles of being drunk. That's how they explained all these, these different languages. They didn't realize they were true languages. And then, as we saw, Peter stood up in the middle of them, and in verses 14 to 36, he, he, ex- he preaches the gospel and explains who Jesus was, the significance of everything that had just happened, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension to heaven. And then he calls the people to repentance. And we saw 3,000 people were baptized in that one day. So the first thing we should recognize from this is that the Christian church existed right in the very beginning, immediately after the ascension of Christ, when the Spirit was poured out. Anyone who would suggest then that the church, the Christian church, is this this organized religion sort of added on top of, of Christianity simply hasn't read the book of Acts. The Christian church is born right from the beginning, and it's born out of the church that God had already been preserving in the Old Testament and under Jesus and under the ministry of the disciples. The church was there right from day one. And also from day one, you could see baptism was already being administered. There was already a sense of membership. It talks about the Lord adding to their their number those who believed. And they were already gathering together. Further, if you'll jump with me to verse 47, notice how the chapter concludes. It says, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Consider that verse. What does that teach us? Well, it tells us not only that the church existed, but that it is in fact Christ himself, the Lord, who builds the church. And he does so by his word and by his spirit. It says the Lord added to their number. This isn't the only verse to teach that point either. Christ says it himself to Peter in Matthew 16. He says, I will build my church. And the implications are so huge for this, and we should, let, we should let those implications sink in. We do not build the church. There is no formula that you can implement that automatically leads to genuine church growth. There's no program that by itself will build the church. Christ builds his church. And we'll see in a moment from this text how Christ does that. But for now, it's important to understand this, that it is Christ, not us, who builds the church. So the church is a divinely gathered assembly, unlike any other assembly, far more than just a a support group. Humans build support groups. Christ builds the church. The church is a supernatural work of God. It, It grows when Christ calls people to himself and, as our text says, adds to the number of the church. It's true, of course, Christ uses our efforts. It's true that we have a responsibility, but we can't make a church come into existence, nor can we even make a church last. Christ does that. And the moment that we forget that the church is Christ's work, and we start to think that church is something that that we do, that we bring together, we not only dishonor Christ, who in fact does it, but we begin to undermine the very foundation of the church. 
The church, then, is the work of Christ. Well, then let's ask, how? How does Christ gather his church? And the answer is very, very visible here in in Acts 2. Notice the sequence of events. Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel, explaining who Christ is, explaining the significance of his life and death and resurrection, and he calls people to repentance. And as the people listened, it says they they were cut to the heart. The message, God took the message and brought it to their hearts such that it made an impact on them. They understood the implications of Peter's sermons and it led them to ask, brothers, what shall we do? And there Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins. And then he explains the gospel promises to them. And then in verse 30 in verse 41 it says they received his word and were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. So we see the whole process by which Christ adds to the number of his church. The word of God The gospel of Christ is preached, it's proclaimed, it's explained, and then the Holy Spirit takes that preaching, blesses it, opens the hearts of the hearers, brings people to repentance, and thereby adds them to his church. Now we can ask, well, who was it that called them? It was Peter, wasn't it, after all? He was the one who preached the word. But what does Luke say in verse 47? He says, it was the Lord who ultimately added to their number those who were being saved. In fact, Peter himself says the same thing in verse 39. He says, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So Peter recognizes, I'm only an instrument in the hands of the Lord. The Holy Spirit filled him. He preached the word, and then the Holy Spirit worked that word into the hearts of those who were listening, brought them to repentance, and gathered them into his church. That is how, and that is the only way, that the church is built. The Lord empowers those who proclaim the gospel and gives and gives, gives preachers to the church so that they would proclaim the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit works with that gospel proclamation and builds the church. Christ himself says it this way in, in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When someone proclaims the gospel faithfully, according to the word of God, it's no longer the preacher's voice that's heard. It's Christ's voice that is heard. And Christ's sheep, Christ's people, will hear. Those who, whom God has chosen to believe, which Christ calls his sheep, they, for reasons that only God knows, they hear, they understand, and they believe. And so they follow him. And that's what this church is here in Alora as well. This church is the gathering of the sheep of Christ who hear his word. That's what brought us here in the first place, and that's what keeps us here even now. And this, knowing this, has massive implications for 
for how we would seek to grow the church, or if we support missions, or if we want to do a church plant somewhere. How will we grow the church? Well, we know the church will only grow when Christ's voice is heard, and, and the gospel is faithfully preached, and then wherever Christ has sheep, they will hear, they will come, and they will follow him. There are sadly so many in modern Christianity who would seek to grow the church by muffling the voice of Christ. Because they fear that if we preach the gospel faithfully, it's going to give people offense. And it certainly will bring offense. But the church will never grow by muffling the voice of Christ. The church will never grow, if I may put it crassly, The church will never grow by preaching a gospel message for the goats. And I don't mean that offensively. In biblical times, it wasn't a nice thing to be called a sheep either. But this is the metaphor that Christ himself uses. He says, my sheep will hear my voice, the goats will not. The church will only grow and the church will only be sustained when the voice of Christ through the faithful preaching of the gospel is clearly heard by those whom God has chosen to hear it. So this has has massive implications, not only then for how we would do a church plant, but also for how we do church Sunday after Sunday. It's Christ's voice that gathers the church, and it's also Christ's voice that sustains the church. We don't just come together to to share the gospel with others, though we certainly do that. And we love to have visitors in our church. But before that, we come together week after week because we ourselves need to hear the voice of Christ in order to survive. The church is built by the Spirit-blessed preaching of the gospel, and the church is sustained by that very same thing. Will this church then endure to the next generation? Well, it will only endure if Christ's voice continues to be clearly heard in this church. Many, many churches have drifted from the truth of Scripture, and it's not surprising, it shouldn't be surprising, that they now find themselves empty. I've seen this, I'm sure you've seen this too, churches that say closed for the summer, and they're closed for the summer because there's just not enough people left to show up at church. And the reason there's not enough people left is because the voice of Christ just isn't heard anymore. How will the church of Christ grow? How will it be sustained? Only by the voice of Christ. It's as the Lord Jesus himself says in in Revelation 2 to the church in Ephesus, Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. So the church is gathered and the church is sustained by the voice of Christ, which is heard in the faithful preaching of the gospel. That's the first thing that we want to recognize from this chapter. Secondly, it is the voice of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel that also distinguishes the true church from the false church. That's the second thing we can notice in this chapter. How can we tell what is a true church? Well, look carefully at what the church does. There were, it says, they were added about 3,000 souls, and then verse 42 
the first thing they did, their, their immediate instinct was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Notice how, how this is just an instinctive thing for the very first believers. They're, they're gathered, they're baptized, and their immediate reaction is, we want to devote ourselves to the, to the apostles' teaching. Now, I don't think the, the four things in this verse are, are meant to be an exhaustive list of everything that the church does, but they are a good summary of the main activities of the church. And the very first thing on that list is devotion to the teaching of the apostles. That's why we, we also have the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of, of, the, of what the apostles taught us, what the Lord Jesus taught us, as the very first and foremost element in, in our worship service. That's why the pulpit stands right front and, and, and center. That was the very source of the church's existence, and it's the foundation for everything else that the church does. Nothing that we ever do is far removed from the Word. And the Word of God is always present, whatever the activity. That's why we as a church, whenever we have events, whether it's a ministry in the city or whether it's a church picnic like yesterday, we begin with the reading of Scripture. It's, it's that fundamental to who we are. It's the Word of God that brings us together. And so this is also then how you can distinguish the true church from anything else that might call itself the church. A genuine church of Christ is devoted to the teaching of the apostles, which we have written in the word of God. A church that, care, that cares nothing for the word of God can no longer be called a church. In our confessions, there's, there's a place where the the marks of the church are listed, and those, those three marks, the three ways by which you may distinguish the true church, are the pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. Now, that isn't to say that anything less than absolute perfection automatically removes the title of church. We shouldn't misuse those marks to, to break communion with other Christian churches. On this side of eternity, the reality is we've, we do come to, to disagreements. But the, what those three marks are, are aiming at and attempting to, to summarize is is a devotion to the Word of God. In fact, the, the Belgic Confession, where it, where it lists those three marks, it goes on to say, in short, the true church uh, governs itself according to the pure Word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it, and regarding Jesus Christ as the only head. The true church, in other words, is one that devotes itself to the Word of God and earnestly strives to base everything that it does on that word. And so we can recognize then the true church by that same spirit that we see already here in, in Acts 2, that spirit of honest, genuine submission to the word of God in everything. That is the, the source of the church's existence, and it's the surest distinguishing mark, and it will be manifested in pure preaching, pure sacraments, and the exercise of discipline. 
Then third and finally, let's consider the other activities of the church that you can find in in verses 42 to 47. It says, first they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. It says they shared all things in common. They went day by day to the temple to hear the word of God. Again, you see that devotion to the word. They broke bread in one another's homes. They shared their meals in gladness, in sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. In other words, because the church has been called out of the world by the gospel, they become a transformed people. They do life completely, wholly differently. They don't think like the world anymore. They don't live like the world anymore. Now, now we might be a little uncomfortable with this, with, with this idea that the, the members of the early church shared all things in common. As, as good, proper North Americans, we, we react against that because it sounds almost a bit like communism. It isn't communism, of course. There, there was no central government there taking away all their money and distributing it for them. Instead, what we see there is simply brotherly love. They voluntarily shared their homes with one another and their things with one another because they saw themselves as members of one and the same family. If you have a brother or sister who falls into some financial crisis, you don't hesitate to help them out as long as they need that help. And that's how the early Christians saw themselves and one another, as members of one family, as genuine brothers and sisters with Christ as their head. That's how how radical was their transformation by the gospel, that they recognized they were a whole new family gathered by Christ. People say that, that blood is thicker than water, but for, for the first believers, the water of baptism ran even thicker than blood. That's also where the tradition of calling one another brothers and sisters, which we still do, that's where that tradition came from. And especially in Roman times, it was a very radical thing to do. It had legal implications to be calling someone your brother or sister. It meant you have responsibility for them and they for you. And it is truly a beautiful thing to see that same spirit even here in this church in in Alora. It is the effect of the word of God that we hear week after week and it's worked into our hearts by the spirit that that love flows out from us also here. It's a real testimony to see believers supporting one another, standing side by side, really treating one another as genuine brothers and and sisters. The, The sharing of homes, the loaning of cars, the giving of meals, the fellowship we enjoy in each other's homes, all of that is a testament to the unity that God has worked in us. There's there's an interesting passage in Mark 10, the Lord Jesus, Peter says to the Lord Jesus, we have left everything for you. And the Lord Jesus responded, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now. In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and then also eternal life in the age to come. What the Lord Jesus is speaking about there is the church. 
through Christ, even though true, the church is persecuted, we still gain already on, on this side of eternity a hundred new homes, a hundred new brothers, a hundred new sisters, a hundred new mothers, sustained by that love which Christ works in us for one another. And that, that mutual love is, is born out of the gospel. Many unbelievers, to be sure, could be philanthropists, meaning they, they're, they're generous donators, and they can make donations to, to good social causes, but the love and the sacrificial sharing that you find in the church doesn't exist anywhere else. It's, it's the result of what Christ has done uh, sacrificing for each of us to bring each of us together. It's the recognition that Christ has died for me and Christ has died for you. And so, and so we must belong to one in the same family. We could say it this way, our love for Christ overflows into love for one another. If we love Christ, then we love anyone else that Christ loves. The Apostle John says it this way, We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he does not see. So then, brothers and sisters, let us, in light of this example of the early church, let us renew that love also then for one another. And let's consider how we can serve one another and minister to one another just as they did then, just as the fathers have done throughout church history, just as the reformers did, and as we already see happening among us. As we confess in our catechism, every one of us is duty-bound to use his gifts cheerfully and readily for the benefit and well-being of the other members. If we love Christ, we will also love those whom he loves, and we will seek ways to, to love and serve and minister to those whom Christ has died for. We can think uh, again of, of what we've seen from the Philippian congregation organizing this, this massive fundraiser out of their, their extreme poverty, Paul said. They organized this massive fundraiser to help the persecuted church in Jerusalem. Believers around the world are part of the precious blood-bought family of God to which you and I also belong. And so they should always remain in our hearts and on our minds and in our prayers. And we should always be open and eager to ways in which we can serve them and serve one another wherever and however God gives us opportunity. So then, brothers and sisters, may the Holy Spirit work that same love in each of our hearts here in this church in Alora, We know he will do so through the preaching of the gospel. That's our life. That's what holds us together. But that, as it's worked in us, overflows into love. So the church is, in many ways, a support group. The church is also, in many ways, a voice, a beacon, a lighthouse to the world, calling unbelievers to repentance. But before everything, the church is the body of Christ. It's the assembly of believers and their children who belong to him, who love him, who serve him, and who worship him. Let us then renew our love for Christ and let it overflow for one another. Amen.